a great deal of pleasure that I give to you your friend and my friend and AA's friend, Marty M. I hope everyone heard every word of that. In the 25 years that I have been speaking, and it's more than that because I've been talking since I first came into AA 29 years ago, I have been introduced thousands of times, literally. I have never had an introduction I liked more, and I want to especially thank Margaret for it. I'm going to begin the way we always begin at our meetings in New York. My name is Marty, and I am an alcoholic. And that's why I'm here. And I want to point out that as Margaret was speaking, I began to feel more and more schizophrenic. Because actually, for 25 years, I've been two people. I have become Mrs. Marty Mann, the public figure, known to many people, particularly professional people throughout this country. And I have remained Marty, the member of AA. And I have never forgotten, and I pray to God I never will, that Mrs. Marty Mann could not exist were it not for Marty, the AA. Obviously, I couldn't do the things I've been doing if I were drinking. Quite frankly, I think if I had continued drinking, I would not be on the surface of this earth. I don't know where I'd be. I'd probably be under it. But it's far more than that. I learned, as many of us learn, when I had been in AA a little while, that one of the statements in our preamble is not exactly correct. I'm going to make two, perhaps, startling statements to all of you. In the first place, I myself, and I think most of you, were got into AA under false pretenses. We came here because of our drinking, period. Nothing else brought us here. Ninety-nine and nine-tenths percent of us didn't do it willingly. We came in with a gun at our head. Whether that gun was a wife or a husband, who obviously weren't going to stick around much longer if we didn't change our ways, whether it was an employer whether it was friends and their gradual disappearance from our life, whether it was that appalling isolation that occurs to the alcoholic when we get bottled up in a bottle and can't reach out of it, there were pressures, very strong pressures, which forced us to AA. I think when we say that we can only help people who are ready, we are stating another myth. Because I think that most people who come to us are not ready. They come under duress. They come because there's nothing else left for them to do. And as I said, most of us came unwillingly. It is not until we have been here two or three meetings, perhaps, and some conversations with other AAs, that our resistance to the whole idea begins to diminish. 
I remember one man. He was a police lieutenant, with an Irish name, naturally, who in his story said that he had come into A with a pistol at each temple, his wife and his captain, and he had come in solely for the purpose of getting those pistols away from his temple, just to get the heat off. And he had made up his mind that he would come for a year, because by that time they would have forgotten all this nonsense and he would be back in right with them, and he could then go about his chosen business, which was drinking. But something happened to him during that year. And when the year was up, he stayed because he wanted to. Even so, he, like most of us, was got here under false pretenses. Some of us interpret that false pretense as being a way to get the heat off. Others interpret it and this is the biggest reservation that most alcoholics have when they first come in, that once they get straightened out and spend a time away from drinking, they will be able to drink normally. Too many people carry that reservation for too many years. In many cases, I have observed they can carry it for 15 or 20 years. And then they begin to act upon it, and we know, alas, that not too many of them ever get back. We cannot afford to hold that reservation for five minutes. It isn't entirely false pretenses that bring us in, because there isn't any question about the fact that AA does do something for us about our drinking, and we shows us how to do something about our drinking. But what we begin to learn when we get in is that that is the smallest part of AA. That is merely the doorway and the threshold over which we step to get into AA. Well, let me say one thing. We couldn't do what AA is really all about if we were still drinking. I would like to see an alcoholic, an active alcoholic, be able to follow even one of the twelve steps. He couldn't even understand them. So you have to be sober in order to follow the twelve steps. But in my opinion, it is the twelve steps that are AA. Well, let me say... They are the heart and the core of AA. They're not the whole of it. And I'd like to talk to you a little bit about my convictions, my beliefs, my interpretation of AA. And remember, I speak for myself only. I can only give you my opinion. I am not the voice of a group or of intergroup or of GSO. I am telling you what Marty thinks. I'm sharing my opinion with you, and you don't have to accept it. That's one of the greatest things about AA. I think there are as many interpretations of AA as there are members of AA. Each one of us develops 
our own idea, our own concept, our own interpretation of AA, and that is what, what makes it and keeps it great. There are basic similarities to all of these opinions and ideas, and there are also differences. And one of the things that we learn in AA is to allow everyone else to have their own opinion. To recognize that we cannot put into somebody else's head our own complete idea, that maybe they'll have some of their own. And we can disagree about many things in an AA and out of it, and remain friends in AA, and remain members of AA. So what I offer you is purely my own interpretation. And it's my interpretation today, in August 1968. And let me tell you that it is very different from the interpretation I had in April 1939 when I attended my first meeting. And it has changed constantly in these 29 years. And because it has changed constantly, I have come to see AA as a process rather than a package that's all wrapped up in a ribbon that you take and take home and it never varies. For me, at least, it has been a process because I think that the program of AA is designed to stimulate growth. And if you remember the phrases in the big book, it talks about spiritual growth. And if you have spiritual growth, you also have intellectual growth, you have personal growth, you have growth in every department of your thinking and living. And this, to me, is what AA is all about. That's why I say we came in under false pretenses. We came in to do something about our drinking, and we stayed in because we found we had something in our hands that met every need in our lives that infused every part of our lives, that worked like yeast on our intellectual life, that changed our thinking and our feeling and our acting, and that under the influence of this beneficent movement toward growth, we gradually started to become the kind of person we had always wanted to be. The kind of person that we thought we could never be again. And sometimes we have been able to become a better person than we ever dared dream that we could be. This is what is possible in AA. This is what I see all the time all around me. This is what is happening to most of us. We have entered into a program of growth. And if we stay with it, and if we let it work in us like yeast, we cannot help growing. And of course, again, this is only my opinion. But I think this is what human beings were put on this earth to do. I think this is the divine plan for every human being, that they should use their life to grow to become bigger and better and broader and deeper. Few people are given the tools that we have been given. We are the most fortunate of people. I honestly believe, let me say first, I am grateful of all the things I am grateful for, and there are thousands, 
The thing I am most grateful for is that I am an alcoholic. When I say this at meetings, new people look shocked. And I kind of think they turn off and don't hear anything else I say. They think, she's crazy. Why should I listen to her? And many times they have told me later that when they heard me say that, they thought I'd taken leave of my senses. That this was, after all, a place for loony bins. And I was the chief one. But that they had come to see what I meant. And they had come to agree that it was the most fortunate thing in their life that they had been vulnerable to the disease of alcoholism and through that had found their way to AA and what it is and what it means and what it does for human beings. We are fortunate. Here we are in a world that seems sometimes to be falling apart all around us, a world that is full of strife, and anger, and hate, and resentment, and violence. A frightening world. All you have to do is read your paper any morning. And if terror doesn't strike your heart, you aren't hearing what you're reading. It is a world in deep, deep trouble. But in that world, there is an island of human beings who have found answers to trouble. To about the greatest trouble, in my opinion, that can happen to a human being. For one thing, I know of nothing more painful than alcoholism. And I say this out of experience, not just off the top of my head. I have had a medical history that no one believes when they see it. When I have gone to a new doctor, as has occurred at times in my life, and given them my medical history, they have looked at me in a way that I knew meant they thought that I was a fantast, that this could not be true. One of them told me he'd taken the trouble to check it because he didn't believe it. I've had nine serious operations in my life. I had tuberculosis when I was 14 and spent three years getting over that. Five of those operations were for cancer. And I've had a variety of other very serious illnesses that I won't even bother you with. And many of them were exceedingly painful, particularly the cancer. And I stand here and tell you that I would prefer to have them all back at once than to return to active alcoholism. That was more painful than all the others put together. Stop and think about it. Alcoholism hurts in every department of your life. It hurts physically. I don't have to tell you that we never feel well when we're drinking. We're always sick. We're sick when we wake up in the morning. We usually have to lose three drinks before one will stay down. And it's painful, physically painful. We achieve a moment of comfort and feeling well when we hit a certain point, and then we can't hang on to it. And all day long, we're struggling to get back to that point where we feel about half as well as normal people feel all the time. We never feel well. And the acute pain of acute intoxication 
and the hours following it, you know and I know that the word hangover isn't a good enough word to describe it. What we have is epic. It should have a word of its own. The average person couldn't stand it. They kill themselves. Oh, yes, it hurts physically. It hurts mentally. Because even if you were a constant drinker, as I was, it is not physically possible to stay drunk all the time. And, of course, alcohol is an anesthetic, and staying drunk means that you can't think. You drown, you obliterate the mental pain by alcohol. But there is no human being that has ever been able to stay drunk 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. Our bodies won't take it. We arrive at the point where it won't stay down, where we cannot hold it. It isn't just three that we lose. It's any that we take in. And we are forced into sobriety. Temporary to be sure, but our minds clear. And we can think. And this happens all too often at three o'clock in the morning. The lowest of the 24 hours for anybody. You passed out or you've fallen into a drunken sleep and you wake up wide awake and shaking at three o'clock in the morning and your whole life passes before you. And you see the horror and you see what you've lost. And you don't know why. And you don't know what to do about it. You tell me this isn't mental pain? It's an agony beyond description. It hurts emotionally. You know that you are hurting everyone you love and who loves you. You begin to lose the people that you love and who love you. They turn from you in disgust and despair. You become more and more alone. You become isolated from the human race. You cannot reach anybody. You cannot hear anybody. You cannot touch anybody. The loneliness of the alcoholic is something else that cannot be described in words. But every alcoholic in this room knows in their heart what I'm talking about and has felt it. You think this isn't emotional pain? It's emotional pain beyond description. So there you have, physically it hurts, mentally it hurts, emotionally it hurts. But it doesn't stop there. It hurts socially. You are no longer acceptable socially. You no longer dare carry out any kind of social activity. You're not wanted. This is part of the isolation, the being cut off from humankind that we experience. Socially, we are anathema. We are ostracized. We have been kicked out of the human race. Socially, it is intensely painful. And it hurts financially. We all know that alcoholism is the most expensive disease you could have. 
You must have liquor, and they don't give it away yet. You have to get it by any means. All your money goes into it. And your ability to work is dropping, 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 so there is less and less money. Financially, it is extremely painful. It hurts in your business or career life. And in career, I include that of housewife and mother. Because whatever it is that you do, you cannot do it. Even if you make a fumbling attack on it, you fail. You cannot function. You cannot function in a job. You cannot function in running a home. You cannot function with your family and with your children. You cannot function. You have no career. Well, I think that about covers everything that makes up life for a human being. And in every department of our life, we hurt. We are in pain. Indeed, we are in agony. This is the illness that we have. Probably the most devastating illness that exists anywhere in the world for any kind of man or woman. This is not a mild thing. This is not a minor thing. This is not a casual thing. It is the most devastating disease loose on the face of the globe. And we have it. And we learn, if we didn't know it before, and most of us didn't know it before, that there is no cure for this disease. Because science has not yet discovered what causes it. We have no idea why one drinker in 14 develops alcoholism and the other 13 can remain normal drinkers no matter how much they drink. No one knows this. It is thought by scientists working in this field that the answers will eventually be found in three major areas. The biochemists believe that they will one day find a physical difference, and they're looking for it, but they haven't found it yet. A physical difference that makes certain people vulnerable to alcoholism. It doesn't doom them to it, because that's not the only cause. There are also causes in the psychological area. It is known that alcoholics are unusually sensitive people, hypersensitive, and that possibly their ability to meet and cope with life was never quite as good as people with less sensitivity. This is not anything to be ashamed of. Once we are sober, once we have been armed with the tools which AA gives us, then our sensitivity becomes a plus and not a minus. But when alcoholism begins to manifest in us, this sensitive psychological plant withers. We become vulnerable to every type of neurosis, and even psychosis in some cases. We become emotionally very, very sick. For some of us, when we enter AA and begin to walk on the up 
upward path toward recovery, most of those things take care of themselves. For others of us, we need more help. We may need professional psychiatric help. Because some of these emotional illnesses are deep and powerful. And we may need all the help we can get to meet them and cope with them. And the third area where the causes will be found, it is thought, is the broad social and cultural area. Clearly, we probably would not develop alcoholism if we had been born into a family of Seventh-day Adventists living in West Kansas. They don't drink, those people. Their whole society does not drink. And someone growing up in that society may never run across it. Or if he does, he is armed by his religious beliefs, by the cultural and environmental pattern in which he grew up, against touching alcohol at all. But most of us have grown up in this country in a drinking society. Our American society is a drinking society. Drinking is an accepted social custom in America. And not a one of us had any way of knowing when we began to drink in our teens that we were going to be that one in 14 who couldn't do it. And there is no way that science knows to prevent alcoholism before it starts. Because we don't have the scientific tools to run every 12-year-old through a series of tests and say to that one in 14, you can't ever drink safely. You have the entire makeup and everything, the fertile field for alcoholism. If you put alcohol in your body, this is what lies ahead of you. That terrible progression downwards of alcoholism. We don't know how to do this. So all of us, remember, began to drink in good faith. We began to drink thinking we were like everybody else. And usually, the average is ten years. For ten years, we not only drank like everybody else, we drank a hell of a lot better than anybody else. We were the ones of whom everyone was proud. He carries his liquor like a gentleman. She drinks like a lady. Why don't you drink like her? They also said of us, and they did of me, she can drink more than anybody else. And I'd been in AA some years before it dawned on me that if everyone said that I could drink more than anybody else, that I drank more than anybody else. And that that wasn't normal drinking. We all start out, apparently, we alcoholics, with a phenomenal, a phenomenal capacity for alcohol. We can put incredible amounts into our system and not fall on our faces at first. And this persists, as I say, this is average, for about ten years. Now, during that ten years, there are an awful lot of signs, warning signals, that we could recognize if we knew what they were. 
but none of us did know. No one knew. It is only recently, in the last 20 years, that we have been able to pinpoint these earliest symptoms and make them available to people. I list 27 of them in my book, Primer. 27 signs that are not visible to other people, but which we could recognize in ourselves if we knew what to look for. One of my great joys in the work I have been doing and the years that I have been sober has been the fact that younger and younger people are coming for help and coming into AA. I talked at a group in New York a couple of weeks ago. They all looked like babies to me. I didn't see how they'd been had time to drink enough to be an AA. The point is that the bulk of the men in that group were under 30 or just over 30. They were young. They had discovered earlier than most of us did the nature of their difficulty. They had recognized that they had alcoholism and they had gone to the best possible place for help. Many of them had arrived there by an indirect route, but that doesn't matter. We in AA will take them from any route. We don't care how corkscrew it is if it lands them here in the end or how long it took. We welcome any alcoholic who wants AA. And we have for that person a toolkit of techniques that will help them get sober and stay sober. Techniques. Tricks, a lot of them. We have the 24-hour plan. And someone may have been drunk for 20 years. But even someone who's been drunk for 20 years during that time has had to stay sober a day or two, if only because they were too sick to hold it. So when you ask them if they can stay sober one day, they know they can. And they find to their amazement that one day becomes ten days, and ten days becomes a hundred days, and a hundred days becomes a thousand days, and it isn't so difficult, one day at a time. This is one of our major techniques. We have the technique of meetings, places where we can go and find others like ourselves, places where AA members get up and share their experiences, their strengths and their hopes with all in that room. We have all kinds of meetings, the variety of AA meetings, and I think this is wonderful, is beautiful to behold. You may remember in the March grapevine, they called it winds of change, and they described different kinds of meetings that are being used and held in different parts of the country. There is no end to the kinds of meetings that our ingenious minds can develop that are helpful to us, to alcoholics. Meetings are a great technique. Sponsorship, probably the greatest technique we have. Sponsorship is the key to the success of new members. Groups that do not offer good sponsorship don't grow. They may get a lot of new members, but they don't keep them. Sponsorship is the key to a good, solid beginning for a new person. And sponsorship is the greatest thing we have to give. And this helps us. 
This is how we give away what we have so freely been given. We have the fellowship itself, the companionship that we find of other people like ourselves. I remember that when my psychiatrist used to tell me, and I thought I was unlucky, he was the only one in the sanitarium that said this, that I could never drink again and I couldn't accept it from him. The first question I asked him was, well, do you drink? And he admitted shamefacedly that he didn't really like it. And I said, uh-huh, can't do it himself, doesn't want anybody else to do it. I did not believe him. I kept prying and prodding, why can't I ever drink again? And he couldn't tell me. And even today we don't know, for sure. I didn't find a reason I could accept why I could never drink again until I read the manuscript of the big book. And there I discovered a phrase which cleared that little bit up for me, thank the good Lord, in which it said, we have an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. We don't know what this allergy is. It isn't even really a medical allergy. It's a physiological difference. We don't know what it is, and nobody's ever found a way to change it. Once you get it, it's irreversible. You got it for life. Your body has become unreceptive to alcohol. It can't handle it. And you're stuck with your body all your life. Well, that's bad enough, but in addition to that, we have an obsession of the mind that drives us to drink when we don't want to drink, that drives us to drink even when we promised ourselves we won't. We have an obsession which is more powerful than we are. But we in AA, the book said, can help you deal with that obsession. But you can never again put alcohol into your body. You have an alcoholic body. This I could accept. This was what made it possible for me to accept the idea that I could never drink again. But in my discussions with my psychiatrist, and thank God for him, he taught me an immense amount. He helped me beyond any words that I can say, and he pushed me into AA when I was unwilling. The greatest thing he did for me, his name was Dr. Harry Tebow. Many of you know that name. Many of you have written, read things he's written. He was the first psychiatrist to accept AA and to try to promote it with his fellow psychiatrists. And he gained no credit for it either. They didn't like him for it. He was a great man. But when he used to say to me, you can never drink again, I said, how can I live? I don't like people who don't drink. Those gray-faced people with white teeth. Those goody-goods. I had never known anybody who didn't drink that I could stand to be in the same room with. Teetotalers. Religious fanatics. These were the things I thought about them. People who didn't know how to live. Didn't want to live, didn't like to live, and didn't want anybody else to either. Oh, I hated. I said, how can I spend my life among people like that? I'd rather be dead. The second thing was, 
that I had been dependent on alcohol from the first drink I took in order to cope with life and with people. I was painfully shy. Alcohol was the answer to that. Two or three drinks and I wasn't shy at all. I was the life of the party. But I was afraid of people. I was uncomfortable with people. I could only handle them two ways. I was so damned aggressive nobody else could get a word in. Or I sat in a corner and never uttered. I had no middle road. I had no way of being comfortable in a social group unless I'd had drinks. So how was I going to manage? I didn't even see how I could function without alcohol. And finally, the first ten years of my drinking, I had a ball. I had a wonderful time. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I had a very wild, exciting life. And I didn't like everyday dull things. To me, a life without drinking was a long, gray desert that stretched as far as you could see, without a hill, without a tree, without anything. Who wants that? I didn't. I simply couldn't imagine a life without drinking. Lonely, no people, dull, nothing to do, no excitement. Painful to me because I needed the support of alcohol. How can you accept this in, in your right mind? And I was sober while I was in the sanitarium. I was in my right mind. And then I attended my first meeting. It was in Bill and Lois's house in Brooklyn, an old brownstone house. I didn't go there alone. The doctor knew I'd never make it. He had picked up the phone and called a man in New York and told him I would come to his apartment in Manhattan. And he and his wife were to take me to Brooklyn to this meeting. I had no choice. He said, you're getting on such and such a train, and when you get off, you take a cab, and you go to that address, and they're waiting for you. And I went. And I walked into that apartment. I never was so scared in my life. This man was a charming gentleman from Virginia. His name is Popsy Marr. And his wife had been a nurse, and she was a darling. And they had asked another man for me, and he was the damnedest good-looking man I'd ever seen. <laughs> a gorgeous black Irishman with black curly hair and blue eyes. Young. Pity he didn't stay sober. But he stayed sober long enough to do me a lot of good. And there they were in a small apartment, and they had a lovely dinner. And they passed around soft drinks in cocktail glasses to make me feel better. And then we all got on the subway to go to Brooklyn, and my terror came up again. And we ran into another AA on his way over there, and he told me afterwards he'd never seen such a wild-eyed dame. I was scared. And we got to that house in Brooklyn, and it looked to me like a million people were in there. There must have been all of 30. And I went upstairs to leave my coat, and I didn't come down. I was scared to go down. And a very charming woman came up. Her name was Lois. She put her arms around me, and she said, We're waiting for you downstairs. Everybody wants you. We love you. Come down with us. And she led me downstairs. And they were all waiting for me. 
There wasn't any other woman alcoholic there, and most of them didn't believe there was such a thing, so at least they were curious. They wanted to look at me. And two or three men came up and asked me, when did you have your last drink? And to my own amazement, I told them the truth. I'd been drinking on and off in the sanitarium. I found ways, I thought, of covering it up. But I never hesitated to tell them the actual day when I'd had my last drink, which wasn't very long before. And I found myself telling them things I had never told anybody, including the psychiatrist. In no time flat, we were exchanging conversation where we found that we, we could finish each other's sentences. I had never had that kind of communication with another human being in my life. These were my people. They understood me. I understood them. I could communicate with them, and they could communicate with me. I had come home. It was the first time in my life that I had gone into a group of strangers and hadn't felt on the outside looking in. I was on the inside. I belonged here. Now, back in the sanitarium, there was an alcoholic, a man, to whom I had passed on the book after I'd read it, and he had accepted the book completely. So when I found I had to go into this terrifying meeting, I had asked him to come with me. He said, oh, no. He said, you go and find out what's like. And if it's all right, I'll go next week. Well, I stayed in town that night after the meeting, and he called up early in the morning. He said, what was it like? And I said, well, Granny, I'll tell you. We are not alone anymore. And I have never been alone since. Here was the force in this room, in that room in Brooklyn, that dissolved the prison in which I had lived for so long. I used to describe how I felt to the psychiatrist. I said, it's as if I were in a glass box. I can see out of it, I can hear through it, but I can't touch anybody and they can't touch me. I'm walled off. The glass dissolved. I was out of the box. I had come home. I had found my people. I had found where I belonged. I was able to communicate, and they were able to communicate with me. And believe me, the need to communicate is one of the basic needs of every human being in the world. And we are the fortunate group that have found an answer. This is what's wrong with the world. People can't communicate with each other. Not really. They talk off the top of their heads. They don't feel with and for each other because communication is more than words. Communication, real communication, is from the heart. It's an emotional thing. It's a feeling. The kind of communication we have doesn't even need words a lot of the time. We can communicate with each other without words. We know each other. We understand each other. We love each other. The world outside needs what we have. We have love for our fellow human being. We limit it 
I don't think we really limit it, but we feel it most intensely for our own kind, other alcoholics and those close to them who have suffered with them and for them. Our love spills over. We can't help but give it. And we've also learned to receive it. It's just as important to be able to receive love as it is to give it. And many people can't do that. They don't know how. We learn how. We learn how in AA, through the 12 steps, and through our fellowship together. I remember once a young man who came into AA. He was the son of a very famous man. There was a lot of wealth in his family. They had spent thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on him. He began to get in trouble when he was in college. He had been a patient in every good private sanitarium in this country, and they sent him to Vienna when Freud was still alive. And nothing had worked. And he came to AA. He was still in his 30s. And he got sober and stayed sober. And he used to say in his talk, he said, you know, I was taught in all the years of treatment that I had everything I needed to know about myself in order to stay sober. I learned all the answers over and over again with variations depending on who it was and where I was. And when I was through with the treatment and discharged from the sanitarium or from the doctor, they'd say, now... You are prepared. Go out and do it. He said, I'd go out and I'd try and I'd fall flat in my face and be sent somewhere else. But when I came into AA, they didn't tell me anything new about alcoholism or dealing with it. But when they finished telling me, they said, come on, let's do it together. And that was the difference. Let's do it together. We are together. We help each other. That's basic to AA, that we should help each other. Share your experience, strength, and hope with others. And we can do it because we can communicate. Because we can really hear each other. We can grasp what others are saying. We can identify with them. And accept what they tell us because of that identification. And even so, these are all techniques. The greatest techniques in the world. The greatest techniques that have ever been devised to stay sober. We have. But all of them put together are not the heart of AA. And if it didn't have a heart, the techniques alone wouldn't be enough. The heart of AA is the 12 steps. That's it. And if you have that, and if you work at that, you can do it without any of the techniques, and we know this because all over the world there are loners. People who have been able to get sober and stay sober without any contact with any AA anywhere, except by mail. They've done it on the 12 steps. And if you look at those steps, and this is why I say we were got in under false pretenses, you will notice that alcohol is mentioned only once in the first step. And that is the threshold you must step over 
before you can begin to work on the other eleven. You must admit that you are powerless over alcohol. And then look at those other eleven steps. You heard them read up here. They don't talk about drinking, any of them. They don't mention it. What are they talking about? You and me as people. What kind of a person are you? Do you recognize your spot in the universe? Do you know who you are? How do you relate to this universe in which you are living? How do you relate to other people? Can you have good relationships with other people? What do you need to do in order to have them? What do you need to do in order to take your proper place in the universe as a child of God? An expression of God. Again, I'm saying purely my own opinion. How can you make yourself a better human being? That's what those steps are about. And if we will accept them and use them, we begin to grow. We can't help it. Because they are designed to produce growth, and that's exactly what they do. We begin to find that the world is not such a bad place, that people are not so terrible, that we can be pleasant and kind to them, and they respond by being pleasant and kind to us, that we make an effort to understand them and why they are as they are and sometimes say the things they say. And they respond by making some effort to understand us. And suddenly we can cope with the world. The world, my friends, is made up of people. We do not live in a vacuum. We do not live alone in the middle of the Gobi Desert. We live among people. And if we're going to live, we have to be able to live with people. And I don't mean just alcoholics. But what happens to us in AA is that we begin to learn how to live with the easiest kind of people for us, our own people, our own kind. Living in AA becomes a learning experience which will equip us to live with those earth people out there that we can't avoid. It's impossible to live 24 hours a day within an AA group. We have to earn our living. We have business dealings, if no others, with non-alcoholics. We usually have a non-alcoholic in our home. Husband or wife, children, relatives, in-laws. So most of us begin with our own, and we're more comfortable with other alcoholics than with anyone else, and very often the wife thinks now she really has lost her husband, because he only wants to be at that meeting. He's learning. It's a necessary part of the process of recovery. He has to learn first where it's easiest and most possible for him to learn 
how to deal with other people, how to be one in a group, how to be comfortable with other people, how to be considerate of other people. He has to learn first where it's easiest to learn among his own kind. And only when he begins to feel a little bit comfortable, a little bit sure of himself, can he begin to use these things he's learned on them out there, those different ones that never understood before, the ones who'd kicked him in the teeth for years, the ones who couldn't comprehend why he drank the way he did, the ones who had turned their backs on him. But if you're sticking to the 12 steps, you will remember that the last half of the 12th step says practice these principles in all our affairs. What that means is that we cannot limit ourselves to being kind and considerate to alcoholics. We have to learn how to do the same thing to non-alcoholics. And this is the hard part. I have seen people come into AA, and I was one of them, who wouldn't move outside of an AA group for months. In fact, I went back to Dr. Tebow after I'd left the sanitarium, and I said, you know, I'm getting a little worried. And he said, why? I said, I haven't seen anyone but an AA for six months, and I don't want to. And I'm afraid I'm hiding behind their skirts. And he said, never mind. That won't hurt you. Gradually, you'll begin to go out into the non-alcoholic world. I didn't have a job, you see, so I wasn't surrounded by non-alcoholics in the daytime. I had no work, couldn't find any. And my effort to find it didn't make me feel any warmer or more comfortable about non-alcoholics. I had something I couldn't explain to them. Why haven't you worked for the last five years? Where were you? How do you explain that to an employment agency? And in 1939, if I had told them, they'd have sent for the man in the white coat, and I'd have been carted off. Nobody would ever heard of AA then. Nobody would ever heard of alcoholism. They were all like me. I had never heard that word until I read the big book. I didn't know there was such a word as alcoholism. And in the many months it took me to get to the sanitarium and to Dr. Tebow, the eight psychiatrists that I'd gone to see in the course of one year, and the eighth one finally took me on. And the seven months I'd spent in Bellevue Hospital in the neurological ward, before I got out to that heaven on earth, which was a sanitarium in the country, which was beautiful, out of that ward in Bellevue, our city hospital in New York. Nobody had ever told me I had alcoholism or used the word alcoholic. They said, people like you. Well, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what they were talking about. You see, I had a deep conviction that I was insane. The last five years of my drinking had left me no other choice in what to think of myself. I was doing something I didn't want to do in a way I didn't want to do it. I was suffering the tortures of the damned and I couldn't seem to do anything about it. I didn't know what was making me do this or why. 
and not a one of those men could tell me. And I thought something had broken in my head. Why couldn't I drink the way I used to? That ten years when I could outdrink everybody else and never show it. Where had that beautiful thing gone and why? I couldn't understand it. And no one ever used the word alcoholism in the 1930s. Dr. Tebow used to tell me I was the victim of his ignorance. Well, I used to say that I hoped a lot of people would be victims of his ignorance. Seemed to have done me rather well. But he was totally ignorant about alcoholism until he got the manuscript of the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And fortunately for me, he was a broad-minded, open-minded man. He didn't think he knew everything. He was willing to learn. And he had given up hope on me. He felt that he had done everything for me that he could out of his own psychiatric knowledge and ability, and he had a great deal. And it wasn't enough. I was still getting drunk. And he had given up hope. And through sheer accident, only I don't believe in accidents anymore. I think it was planned that way. I think I was saved because I had something to do in the world that was good, that I could only do because of my experience, the horrors, the long years of suffering. I think I was saved to do that. I think every member of AA was saved to do good. I do not think that we survived by accident. Well, in this case, Dr. Tebow was very active civically in the town. He served on many committees. And there was a woman in Greenwich who also served on many committees, and she served on several with him. And her brother-in-law in New York was Popsy Marr, the one to whose home I went. And when the book was getting ready to be printed, Bill and the others felt that they wanted to have it gone over carefully by psychiatrists and clergymen because they didn't want anything in the book that would offend either of them, since they felt that that was going to be the source from which they would get people to help. You couldn't go out in the bars and grab up alcoholics. We never did, and we don't do yet. So where are they? They're in doctor's offices or they're in clergymen's offices seeking some kind of help for what's wrong. This was the source, they felt. So if there was anything in the book that was offensive, either to medicine or the church, those people weren't going to send people to AA or call AA in. And they had many copies, manuscript pages, bound in cardboard, you know, with those wire circles up and down the spine, to distribute to doctors and clergymen for comments, for suggestions, so they would not allow anything to be printed when the book was printed that bore offense. And Popsy Marr had asked his sister-in-law if she knew any doctors in Greenwich who would be willing to read this manuscript. She said, yes, I do. I know one. Give it to me and I'll take it to Dr. Tebow. And that's how he got it. And he read it. And the minute he had finished reading it, he sent for me. And he said, Marty, 
I want you to read this book. It was written by people like you. They seem to have found an answer for themselves. And I think maybe it will help you. Now, I want you to read it. Take it here. And I went off with it to read. And there, for the first time, I found the word alcoholism. I discovered that it was not insanity. Dr. Tebow had been telling me I wasn't insane, but I didn't believe that either. That I had a disease called alcoholism. That there were many people that had this disease. People who had it were called alcoholics. You know, I never was one who boggled at that word. I was so glad to have a name. You see, I'd been in that sanitarium at that time for almost a year. It was a big place. It had 500 acres. And on those grounds were many, many buildings. It wasn't so big in the number of people it took. It took 75 people, which is small as sanitariums go, but it was a very good one. But these buildings were of different sorts. When you came in, there was a great big iron gate and a beautiful mansion right there at the gate. It had been built by a great New York politician around the turn of the century, and it was a magnificent mansion with white columns and, you know. That's where the doctor's offices were. That's where the admitting office was. And there were rooms in this house, which had been a house, big rooms, where people went when they were almost ready to leave. They were not under supervision there. There were no nurses sitting at every corner of the floor to see where you went. You were pretty free, and you stayed there the last month or two to get a little bit used to being on the outside. And then you went down the driveway, and on the right was the first house that people went into, and that was a lockup house. And this is where people were taken when they arrived very drunk. Way off where you didn't see it, close to the road, there was another house that was a first admission house. That's where the psychotic ones were taken who arrived in straitjackets screaming. It had a padded cell in it. And we, they had a little tiny golf course. We who were playing on the golf course or walking through the woods up to the pottery house could hear the screams from the, vi- we called it the violent house. Beyond the little first admission house, where most people were taken when they first came in, the lockup house, there was a great big house, and it was where the big living room was, the common room and the dining rooms. And upstairs, there were two floors of rooms, with a nurse stationed at every corner. This was the middle house, and that's where most people spent the longest time. I describe this to you for one reason only. There were many, many houses scattered around in the woods where we never saw the patients, the very, very sick ones. But what I saw in the course of that year were any number of people who had arrived by ambulance in straitjackets to the violent house. After some months, they had moved up to the middle house, where I was. After more months, they had moved to the house at the gate, the free house, and they'd gone home. I'd seen this over and over again. And I stayed. 
Now, this is before I'd read the book, before I'd learned, heard the word alcoholism. I had come to the conclusion that I had a mental illness so awful and so incurable that I'd never get out. So awful that they wouldn't tell me what it was. This I believed until I read the big book. And there I found out what I really had. You think I didn't love that name, alcoholic? Woo! I kept saying it to myself over and over, I'm an alcoholic, isn't it wonderful? I still say that, I'm an alcoholic, isn't it wonderful? For a different reason now. Not just because it means I'm not hopelessly insane, which I had believed, but because it means that I belong to that fellowship which is an island of sanity in an insane world, which is spiritually based, solidly and firmly based, something that everybody else needs, and most of them don't even know they need it. And that's why they're floundering around, the young as well as the old. We have it. It's pretty hard to follow those 12 steps and skip the first few. Pretty hard. If you really accept AA, you accept some kind of spiritual belief. You may not like the word God, you don't have to use it. You may begin, as many people do, by saying the power greater than myself is the group. And it is. And it's a very good beginning. But most people don't stop there because, as I said, this is a program of growth. And gradually they grow in their resistance to the acceptance of faith finally dies away. And once you have achieved that, once you have really accepted faith in a power greater than yourself, once you can say, God, as I understand him, and have it mean something to you, then you have the most solid base that mankind has ever discovered on which to stand. Then you really have it. And it'll never let you down. You may turn your back on it. You may not use it. But it will never let you down because God never lets anyone down. We let him down. We forget about it. We turn our back on it. But he has never let anyone down ever and never will. Often I come back in reading the 12 steps and in the discussion group that I go to every week. We take up a step every other week. In between, we take up problems. We always have plenty to say. I have found that for me, I think, maybe that's just at this point in my growth or in my life, the third step is the key. This is what I must go back to over and over again. To meet any problem in my life, and I have many. You know, getting sober is not like the end of a fairy tale. You live happily ever after and you never have a problem. We have more problems than we had when we were drinking, once we get sober, because we can recognize them. They were there before, but we drowned them in alcohol. We wouldn't look. But when we get sober, we have the problems that every human being has. Life is made up of problems. I once heard 
I can't remember his first name. Dr. White, the great heart specialist, the one that treated Ike and his heart when he had his heart attack. Most famous heart specialist in the country. I heard him talking at a meeting, and he said he had just come back from a meeting on the West Coast where they were talking about stress and strain and its relationship to heart disease and heart conditions and what a terrible thing it was. He said he'd waited his turn, and then he got up and he said, now, wait a minute. If we didn't have stress and strain, we wouldn't be alive. Every human being needs stress and strain in order to function. What we need is to be able to deal with stress and strain, not to eliminate it. It's a valuable thing. And he's right. It has to be. It's part of living. It's part of the world. We don't get rid of stress and strain and problems by coming into AA. We develop a coping mechanism. We learn how to deal with them, how to live with them. One of the main things we learn is that you can't meet problems or stresses and strains by being rigid. If you stand up absolutely straight and refuse to bend, a high wind will knock you flat in your face. But if you bend and are flexible, you can take that wind without falling. Now, this is exactly what happens with stress and strain and problems. The tools that we're given in those 12 steps equip us to live with stress and strain and stay flexible and not be knocked down. And if we have accepted God as we understand him and begun to base our life on that belief that we've developed faith, we have all the equipment we need to meet any kind of stress and strain the world can give us. And I deeply believe what many people have said, God never gives us anything that is more than we can bear. It may seem that we can't bear it, but if we didn't have the equipment and the ability to bear it, it wouldn't happen to us. And sometimes we think when the problems have come thick and fast over a long period that we're like Job, you know, we're just being forgotten and thrown into the outer darkness. And some of us think, well, we're being tested, and isn't that kind of unfair to keep testing us that way? Maybe we are being tested. Maybe it's necessary to bear down upon us that we need a solid base of belief and faith in order to function. Because once we gain it, life becomes entirely different. Our whole attitude changes. Our whole means of coping with things changes. We're not alone anymore. We've got a partner. It's God. God didn't save us in order to throw us into the jaws of hell. We were saved in order to become bigger and better and stronger and finer and to do some good in the world. Look what we've been given. We have been sought out by God. And we've been given one of the greatest things a human being can have. Every one of us is equipped to help somebody else. I know clergymen and professional people who'd give their eye teeth to have what we have. They'd like to be able to help alcoholics the way we can. They can help in many ways. 
But we have something nobody else has. We can reach through to a suffering alcoholic. We can break down that barrier or get behind that barrier that he put up against the world for so long. We can communicate. And we can help. And this is a great, great gift. We have something that we can give away. But we only have it if we have gained it for ourselves. You can't give away something you haven't got. But if we have accepted AA and all that it offers us, if we have used all the techniques, if we really work at the 12 steps, and we'll be working at that for as long as we live, there's no such thing as being perfect in those. That may happen when we reach the next plane, but it isn't likely to happen on this earth. But if we're working at them as best we can, and doing the best we can every day, we are constantly better able to help more people. We're in a wonderful position. This is what we have. This is what has been freely given to us. And since that is so, we have a responsibility. Of all the people in the world, alcoholics were less responsible than any. That's what we didn't have when we were drinking. We were not responsible. We couldn't accept responsibility. We didn't want responsibility. We ducked it every time we could. Once we get into AA and stay sober a while, we become able to accept responsibility. And most of us accept the primary responsibility we get in AA, which is to try to help other alcoholics. Part of the 12 steps. It's what AA is. It's what we're all about. We accept that responsibility and we begin to try to help other alcoholics. And as we go along, we realize that we have many more responsibilities besides that one. We have a responsibility to follow those 12 steps and to do the most and the best that we can. We have a responsibility toward our families, those who have loved us and stayed with us when we were hopeless and helpless and desperate. We have a responsibility to any employer that we may have. He's paying us good money. We better do something to earn it. We have to be responsible. We have a responsibility to all our fellow humans, not just alcoholics, to practice these principles in all our affairs. We have a responsibility to our own group to help make it the best group that we can. We have all kinds of responsibilities. And we are now equipped and able to shoulder them. We have rejoined the human race. That's what AA has done for us. And I think there is another responsibility that we have. To be grateful. I deeply believe that that is the answer to many problems that many of us have. When the problems are thick and fast and we get discouraged and we get depressed, and I know a lot about this. I happen to be subject to very black depressions. And I have a rough time. And I still have them. 
And when you're in a really black depression, you're paralyzed. You can't think, you can't pray. You're cut off, I'm back in that glass box temporarily. One thing I can do, even though I'm paralyzed and I can't pray and I can't communicate and I can't do anything, I can be grateful because I can count my blessings. And there they are. I'm alive. I'm sober. I have a job. I have friends. And many material things that I can put my finger on. I have a car. I have a house. These sound kind of simple. But when I came into AA, I didn't own one single thing. I had no family to support me. I had no money at all. The few clothes I had were secondhand. I hadn't held a job in some years because I was incapable of holding a job. And I had to work to earn my living. I had no other living. I was totally stripped. I had nothing. So even when I'm at the lowest depth of depression, I can look in the mirror and look around me and count my blessings. I can be grateful. Sometimes that's enough. Sometimes that will lift you. A little bit, anyway. One of the things that helps my depressions most is going to meetings. Even when I sit there like a bump on a log and can't hear anything. Now, you know what I mean by not hearing. It can't get in. It comes on the outside of your ear, but doesn't mean anything. I had been in one of these depressions for not weeks, but months. Last fall. And I had been invited to speak at the state AA meeting in Kansas. And I wondered how I was going to do it. But I have spoken so much over so many years that I can always say these things, even if inside I feel I myself am cut off from them temporarily. And I know it's temporary. This has been going on for so long. I One of the things I have to say to myself is, it's got to end someday. It always does. There is a light at the end of that tunnel, even if I can't see it. And one morning I'll wake up and it'll be gone, which is how it happens. Well, I went out to Kansas, and it was a three-day meeting. And I was speaking Saturday night, but I got there on Friday. I attended every single meeting, and they had the morning, afternoon, and evening. And at the end of every meeting, as we did last night and as we will today, everyone stood and said the Lord's Prayer, and I did too. And I left that meeting on Sunday entirely free of my depression. That had done it. I think it was more the saying of the Lord's Prayer than anything. But it was everything that was at that meeting. The people, the love that flowed all around us. And that's what you really feel in an AA meeting. People, you know, that we bring in as guests remark on the atmosphere. They love it. It's such an extraordinary atmosphere. The atmosphere they feel is love. We have it. We give it. And we receive it. And if that's not something to be grateful for, I don't know what it is. Gratitude and responsibility. 
And those two things put together mean, to me, that we have been given the great gift of sobriety, and this is a miracle. The more I have learned about alcoholism in my professional life, the more I realize that there is absolutely nothing to be done about it. It is so difficult, it is so complex, it is so not understood, so little is known about it, that it is a totally and completely hopeless condition. Nobody has any right to get over it. But look around you. We have. Recovery from alcoholism, and never forget it, is pure miracle. AA is truly a miracle. Each one of us is a walking miracle. We have done the impossible. Or it's been done to us. But you know, to God, nothing is impossible. And that, I think, is why we're well. But we've been given this impossible thing, sobriety to an alcoholic. On the other hand, sobriety is not so remarkable. Most people have it all the time. So what are we crowing about? It is not the sobriety that is so important in AA. It's what do you do with it? What kind of sobriety is it? And how well are you using it? For this we are responsible. For we are the examples. Each one of us is an example of what AA can do. And we live in a non-alcoholic world. They look at us. And if what they see looks good, they're going to tell the alcoholics they know about it and urge them to come to us. Whether they do that or not is our responsibility. If they look at AA and they don't like what they see, they're not going to send people to us. If we can't keep what we've got, if we're floundering around drunk all the time, we aren't a very good spokesman for AA, are we? We're not a very good advertisement. But if we are... Well, we used to have a saying in the early days of AA, it is the quality of your sobriety that counts, not the length of time you've had it. What quality of sobriety do you have? Is it good? Is it growing? Is it getting better? If so, you are a worthy example of what AA can do for an alcoholic. That's your responsibility, to be a worthy example. We have been given so much. The miracle of life. The miracle of sober life. The miracle of friendship. The miracle of faith. We can't just be grateful in a quiet closet by ourselves. We have to live our gratitude and show it. We have to give away what has been so freely given to us. We have to keep growing. These are our responsibilities. And if we live up to them, 
the best we can. We will retain what we've been given. If we don't, we'll lose it. We are a perfect example of the biblical statements that you have to give away in order to keep. This isn't so difficult. For most of us, it's pleasure. Even the rough spots, when they're over, have added to us somehow, to our belief, to our strength, to our faith. And life becomes better year by year, not worse. And year by year, we have more friends. Think of the position we're in. We have friends wherever we go. Friends we've never seen, we haven't met yet. And two minutes after we meet, we're sitting in intimate conversation. We are the fortunate ones. Never forget. I don't. The thing I am most grateful for in my life is AA. The thing I value the most in my life is AA. The people I love most in my life are you AA's. 